stories of imagination are never far. They still reside in us, guiding us ever forward. Join us now as we journey forward into the past. And here is your host, J.C. Riddell. Hey everyone, welcome back to Forward Into the Past. I'm J.C. Riday, your host and narrator, and I'm very excited to pick up where we left off last time for the next part of the Nick Carter story, The Crime of the French Café, written in 1893, originally published in Street and Smith's story paper called The New York Weekly, written by Nicholas Carter. Nicholas Carter, the writer of the Nick Carter stories, was a pseudonym created by Ormond G. Smith, who initially devised the character of Nick Carter for his father's publishing house. John Russell Coriel, an in-house writer for Street and Smith, fleshed out the detective's first story, and the next two, and then, due to demand for new Nick Carter stories, turned over the writing duties to over a dozen different writers. The demand for Nick Carter stories was soon so high that Street and Smith soon gave Nick Carter his own weekly magazine. Unfortunately for Nick Carter and us as an effect, although he was immensely popular, as I mentioned in the last podcast, he has appeared in well over 4,000 stories, his star faded into obscurity. And from the research I've been able to cobble together, there were a few different issues that came up over time, and we'll discuss those in future podcasts. Luckily for us, there are several university libraries that have digitized thousands of story papers, dime novels, and pulp magazines, including the Nick Carter stories. And as always, I tip my hat, I always imagine I'm wearing a fedora, to Project Gutenberg, whose team of volunteers continues to save these public domain digital images and convert them into full-fledged ebooks available to download and read easily on any device, whether it's a phone, a tablet, or just a computer screen. Hopefully I'm doing the Nick Carter stories justice in order to keep his exploits alive. Let's see, as we continue where we left off last time in The Crime of the French Café. In the last episode, an unknown woman was left murdered in a French café in what was known as the Tenderloin District. More on that name in a later episode. Famous detective Nick Carter witnessed an unknown person leaving the café and entering a cab going to some unknown destination. Gaspard, the head waiter at the café, claims to remember the face of the man in the private dining room where the murder took place, and now he and Nick have traced this man's steps back to the elevated train, where Gaspard identifies the man at a distance. Chapter 3. John Jones I want you, whispered Nick. How many luckless criminals had been startled by those words? How many have seen the prison or the gallows rise before them at the sound? In this case, however, the words seemed to produce less than the ordinary effect. The man to whom they were addressed turned suddenly toward the detective, but did not shrink or tremble. I beg your pardon, said he. I didn't quite understand what you said. The man's coolness made Nick even more in doubt about Gaspard's identification. After boarding the train, they had walked through it hurriedly and in the car next to the engine, Gaspard had clutched Nick's arm, whispering, There is your man! 
The person indicated was well-dressed, rather good-looking, and about 35 years old. There was nothing particularly striking about his appearance. It would have been easy to have found dozens of such men on Lower Broadway any day. Nick feared a mistake, but Gaspard was sure. I never forget a face, he said. That is the man who I saw coming out of Room B. That is the murderer. The man was standing up and holding on to one of the straps. His profile was turned to them. Nick waited until he turned and showed his full face. The detective was bound to give Gaspard every chance to change his mind. But he remained firm, and at last Nick approached the accused and suddenly whispered those terrifying words in his ear. Having done so, he was obliged to carry it through. Therefore, when the stranger asked Nick to repeat what he had said, the detective, in a low voice, inaudible to anyone else in the car, told him what the accusation was. This is ridiculous, said the man. I read the story of this affair in the papers this morning, but I am not connected with it in any way. If you arrest me, you must be prepared to take the consequences. I guess we can manage the affair quietly, said Nick, and give you no trouble at all. I suppose you were going downtown to business? Yes. Well, I will go along too, if you don't mind. By all means, said the man, and he looked much relieved. I understand what your duty is, he continued, since this imported French jackass has made this charge. Of course you will have to look into it. Come down to the office and make some inquiries, and then go up to my flat. I was at home last evening after eight o'clock. What did you do before that? I had dinner with my wife, and then put her aboard a train. She's gone away on a visit. Where has she gone? <laughs> no, sir, none of that. I don't propose to have a detective go flying after her to scare her to death. She keeps out of this mess, if I have any say about it. But if you're arrested, she'll hear about it and come back to the city. I'm not going to be arrested. You're too sensible a man to do such a thing. I can see that. Uh, here we are. We get off at Franklin Street. My place of business is just a little way up the street, toward Broadway. They left the train. Nick was beginning to feel that a mistake had been made. This man's easy manner and perfect confidence were hard to square with the idea of his guilt. By the way, said the suspect as they descended the stairs, I forgot to give you my card. He handed it to Nick as he spoke, and the detective read this. Mr. John Jones, Alan Morrison Jones, Electrical Fixtures, The Sunlight Lamp. What did I tell you? exclaimed Gaspard, who was looking over Nick's shoulder. It is that name. It is the name that was on the register. He is the man. But Nick took a different view. He was of the opinion that Mr. Jones had presented very strong evidence of his complete innocence. Anybody else might have signed himself John Jones, but the real John Jones? Never. It would be mighty hard to convince a jury that a man meditating murder had recorded his correct name for the benefit of the police. The coincidence was certainly astonishing, but it was in Jones's favor. They walked over to the office of Alan Morrison Jones. Mr. Allen was there. Ah, uh, good morning, Mr. Allen, said Jones. <laughs> My name has gotten me into trouble again. How is that? Did you hear about that French restaurant murder last night? Mm, well, I glanced at the story in one of the papers. <laughs> this Frenchman here is a waiter at the place. He saw me in an elevated train just now and told this other man, who was a detective, 
that I was the party who took that woman to that restaurant. That was bad enough, but when they found out what my name was, they convicted me immediately. It appears that the visitor to the restaurant signed the very uncommon name of John Jones on the books. Why, what the devil? exclaimed Alan, looking wrathfully at poor Gaspard, who was shaking in his shoes. Don't you know this is a serious matter? What do you mean? He is the man, cried Gaspard. If I were dying, I would swear with my last breath that this is the man. But who is the woman? asked Alan, turning to Nick. And what is she to do with my partner? That I cannot say, replied Nick. She has not been identified. Then you have absolutely nothing to go upon except this fellow's word? Nothing. <laughs> Why, this is nonsense! Perhaps so, said Nick. But you will admit that I would be false to my duty if I did not make an investigation. <laughs> Investigate all you wish, laughed Jones. But don't bother me any more than you have to. This is my busy day. I'm going right away, said Nick. All I want of you is that you will give me your address and meet me at your home in the latter part of the afternoon. Very well, said Jones, and he scribbled on a piece of paper. I'll be there at half-past four o'clock. Nick thanked Mr. Jones for his courtesy and immediately withdrew. But he did not go far. In a convenient doorway, he wrote a note to Chick on the back of the scrap of paper which Jones had given him and sealed it in an envelope. Then he sent Gaspard with it to Chick, who was on the lookout in the undertaker's room where the body lay. Having dispatched this message, Nick changed his disguise and kept watch over the establishment of Alan Morse and Jones. Nothing of importance happened until a little afternoon when a reply came from Chick. Translated from the detective cipher, it read as follows. The address is that of a good flat house. Jones lives there with his wife. They have been there only two months. Nobody in the house knows anything about them. They had one servant who was taken sick about two weeks ago and carried to a hospital where she died. Since then, they have lived absolutely alone. There was nobody in the house who had seen Mrs. Jones's face. She always wore a heavy veil. The only description I could get tallied with that of the body. The principal point was the hair. I have just found a woman who saw Mr. and Mrs. Jones go out yesterday afternoon. She remembers Mrs. Jones's dress. The description agrees with that found on the corpse. Jones carried an alligator-skin traveling bag. Nobody saw either of them come back to the house, but Jones evidently slept there. I shall take the woman who saw them go out to the room where the body lies. We'll send Patsy down with the result of this effort at identification. I believe it will show the woman to be Mrs. Jones. I send this that you may have warning. Chick. Nick read this note and then glanced across the street toward the office of Alan Morrison Jones. Through the window, he could see Jones calmly writing a letter. Could it be possible that this man was guilty of so hideous a crime? Half an hour passed and then came the second message as follows, identified as Mrs. Jones. Chapter 4. All Sorts of Identifications I am sorry to tell you, Mr. Jones, that the body of the woman murdered last night has been identified as that of your wife. So spoke Nick, and this time Jones' calmness was not proof against the surprise. It can't be possible, he exclaimed, leaping from his chair. I am so informed, said Nick, and I must place you under arrest. Uh, but there must be some infernal mistake here, said the accused. I know that my wife is all right, 
This must be somebody else. A lady living in the same house with you has recognized the body. I don't care if she has. Nobody in that house knows my wife. Is there anybody in the city who does know her? I can't think of anybody. How about the grocer with whom you traded? Our servant attended to all that till she was taken sick. Since then I've done what little there was to do. We've eaten most of our meals at restaurants. What restaurants? Oh, all around. Uh, there's the Alcazar, for instance, where we have sometimes dined together. Does the head waiter there know her? I suppose he would remember her face. He doesn't know the name. All right. I'll have him look at the body. But, man, you're going to let me look at it, aren't you? exclaimed Jones. That would settle it, I should think. I'll take you there now, and we will try to get somebody from the Alcazar at the same time. Nick took the prisoner at once to the Alcazar. The head waiter remembered Jones's face. He had seen him dining with a lady who had beautiful light hair. The three went to the undertaker's rooms. Nick watched Jones narrowly as he approached the body. He started violently at the first sight of it. Then he became calm. The hair is wonderfully like, he said, but there is no resemblance between the two faces. That is true, gentlemen, said the head waiter. This is not the lady. On the contrary, said a voice close beside them. I believe that this lady was your wife, Mr. Jones. All the color went out of Jones's face as he turned quickly toward the man who had spoken. Yeah, Mr. Gottlieb, he said. I am surprised to hear you say that. Mr. Gottlieb is the grocer from whom the Joneses bought their supplies, said Chick, who had advanced to Nick's side. I was not aware that you had ever seen my wife, said Jones, looking searchingly at the grocer. I never saw her plainly, said Gottlieb. She came into my store once or twice, but always closely veiled, so I cannot be sure, and of course, if you insist that this is not your wife's body, I must be mistaken. You are mistaken, sir, said Jones coldly. He turned to Nick. Mr. Gottlieb has sealed my doom for the present, he said with a smile. I am ready to go with you. Nick took his prisoner to police headquarters. The police had meanwhile sent Patsy in quest of Harrigan, the coachman. Jones was taken into the superintendent's room, and a dozen other men were assembled there waiting for the arrival of the cabman. Harrigan was very nervous when he appeared. Yes, fellas are trying to do me out of me license, said he. But I'm telling you I was all right last night. I wasn't half so paralyzed as you'd think I was. Show me your man and I'll identify him. Harrigan was led into the superintendent's room. When he saw how many men were there, he seemed to be a great deal taken aback. But he put a bold face on the matter and promptly advanced, saying, This is a man. Nick made a gesture of disappointment, and then he laughed, and the superintendent with him. The man whom Harrigan had selected was Chick. It was evident that the cabman was going on pure guesswork. Being sharply questioned, he confessed that he had no idea how his fare of the previous night looked. I'll give it to you dead straight, said he at last. I don't know whether the mug was white or black. Say he might have been Chinese. I believe that fellow is faking, said the sergeant to Nick as Harrigan left the room. No, he's straight enough, I guess, said Nick. He's not the sort of man who would have been let into a game of this kind. Nick then proceeded to question the prisoner in the presence of Chick and the superintendent. His answers were straightforward enough, but they threw little light upon the affair. 
The only subject which he refused to discuss was the whereabouts of his wife. When questioned about her, he invariably declined to speak. She's gone on a little pleasure trip, he said, and I want her to enjoy it. This affair will be all over when she gets back. She will never hear of it where she is, and that's as it should be. Nick returned to his house where he was informed that a visitor was waiting for him. He found a gentleman somewhat under forty years of age and apparently in prosperous circumstances pacing the study floor. The visitor was evidently greatly excited about something for his hands trembled and he started nervously when Nick entered. Mr. Carter, he said anxiously. Can I trust you fully? Nick laughed. I shan't do anything to prevent it, he said. Will you swear to keep what I shall tell you a secret? No, sir, I will not. The man made a despairing gesture. I suppose that your business was always strictly confidential, he said. So it is, but I take no oaths. I didn't mean that exactly, but... but... The man hesitated, stammered, and was unable to proceed. Come, sir, said Nick. Be calm. Tell me plainly what you want me to do for you. It isn't for me. It's for a... for a friend of mine. Very well. What can I do for your friend? He is accused of a terrible crime of which he is entirely innocent. I want you to save it. I have been asked to do that many times. And have you always succeeded? Oh, no. In several cases the persons have been hanged. The visitor shuddered violently. I had heard, he said, that you never failed to find the guilty persons and to save the innocent. That is the truth. It has been my good fortune to leave no case unsettled. But you said these innocent persons had been hanged. They were hanged, said Nick, but they were not innocent. Their friends assured me that the persons were entirely guiltless, but this was not true. And therefore, Nick continued, looking straight into the man's eyes, I should advise you to be very sure of your friend's innocence before you put the case in my hands. The visitor looked very much relieved. I'm perfectly sure of it, he cried. My friend had nothing to do with this case. I'm glad to hear of it. Who is he? The man who has been arrested in this restaurant murder case. John Jones? That is the name he has given to the police. But isn't that his right name? I... I don't know, stammered the visitor. He must be a very particular friend of yours since you don't know what his name is. I never saw him in my life. Now look here, Mr... Uh, uh, Hammond is my name. Well, Mr. Hammond, your statements don't hang together. You began by saying that this man was your friend. I didn't mean that exactly, but I sympathize with him. It must be terrible to be arrested for such a crime and to find the evidence growing stronger in spite of your innocence. How do you know that he is innocent? Before Hammond could reply, there came a knock at the door. Nick answered it. Come in, Gaspard, he said, throwing the door wide open. You sent for me and... Good God, who is this? You know him, then? Yes, yes, I know him, cried Gaspard. He is the man who was in room A last night. Well, that adds a new wrinkle into the story. Who is Hammond, and what was he doing at the French café? If the woman is not John Jones's wife, then who is she? And what is the relationship between Jones and Hammond? These questions and more will be answered in the next exciting episode of Nick Carter and the Crime of the French Café. Hey, hey folks, thanks for listening. 
Once again, special thanks go out to the tireless crew of Project Gutenberg for providing this and other amazing stories available absolutely free on the Project Gutenberg website. That's gutenberg.org, O-R-G. Well, until next time, folks, thanks for listening, keep sharing your stories, and be a good human. Bye for now.